0: He's going to start his teaching. Uh, My red folder is to Sarah Monica. Thank you so much. Okay. Quiet coyotes, as they say. All right. Thank you. (laughs) You might not know that one. You're supposed to hold up your coyote hand and stop talking at the same time. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So I'm going to pray for Gordy, and then he's asked me to read the reading that he's going to be teaching from today. Um, because we record our teachings and we make them available online on our church website I will read the reading into the mic so that it can be recorded mm-hmm. to go along with that teaching Great, we will just pray for you. Shall I read first or pray first?
1: Whatever you want.
0: Alright, I'll pray. I'm here, my <laughs> hand's here all right. Thank you Lord uh, for the divine timing for this teaching series, what you're doing in our church community but what you did first of all in, in Gordy's heart and uh, you've just given this message to him, and, and he is is living it. He's living it. He's trying to walk it out. He's trying to put it into practice, and uh, that's the best kind of teacher to have. So we just thank you for his example to us today. I pray that you would make his teaching laser sharp, just the go going right to the bone, right to the heart, and that you would prepare each one of us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to respond, and Wisdom and divine knowledge as to how to put it into practice. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks,
1: Check one two, test one two. Mm.
0: Hmm. So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 18. This is the same reading that Gordy taught from last week. We're going to be looking at this scripture again today. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Mm. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Mm -hmm. This is the good news of Christ.
1: Praise to you. Thanks, too. So, we covered this text kind of with an aerial view last Sunday... And today I want to hone in on the first five verses and uh, ask the question, what did Jesus mean when he said to become as little children? And uh, I'd like to start off by talking about what he didn't mean. Uh, How many think that might be a good idea? Uh, Because scriptures are a bit ambiguous when it comes to, to... being like children. Uh, Here, it's very positive. But in other places, it's outright denounced. Um, For example, in my devotions this week, I was reading from Corinthians where Paul called the Corinthians a bunch of babies. And it wasn't a compliment. He said, brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as mere babies in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. For you are not ready to eat it yet. You are still worldly since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? And so he he equates worldliness with spiritual babyhood um, as being an infant. And so growing up, I I don't know about you that have, those of you that have um, more than one child, how many know sometimes there's conflict? between them. And uh, growing up as a child, and it's good to remember your own childhood, it was uh, really uh, helpful for me to remember this week and reflect on the backseat of the car when we would go on long road trips. I found that was an excellent place to fight with my brother and sister. And the reason is, is when dad was driving, he was incredibly vulnerable in terms of not being able to discipline us. So if we had a good fight and a big scrap in the back of the car, and he would, you know, threaten and, and warn us and pronounce certain impending judgment that was going to come at the next uh, stop, um, at that point, we knew it was time to repent. And, and, and we got really good at becoming so sweet till the time we stopped that he felt bad about any kind of discipline um, that he was planning on executing upon us. And so fast forward 20 years to the back seat of my car when I'm driving, and my kids are in the back seat, my son, who was about 11, my daughter, who was about 8, and they brought, we brought a friend of his, our, of our son's, who went to Grandview School here, on a trip to California, we, we uh, got evicted from our apartment uh, uh, for a couple of months and had no place to live, so we put our stuff in storage and just headed to California for our, our one Disneyland trip that we ever had with our kids. So we brought one of our uh, Christian's friends, and they fought like cats and dogs just all the way from Vancouver to Los Angeles, and I remember my uncle uh, who watched us grow up, and he was a pastor in Southern California, really close actually to where Disneyland was, and as we were getting ready to leave, he looked in the back seat of the car, and and the three kids were sitting there in a row, and he looked in and he said, do you guys fight? And they kind of went, yes, and he says, there is justice in this world, (laughs) never forgotten that. So so Paul says in in that context, don't be like kids. Uh, there's, There's other passages, Hebrews, where it says that when we're always in a place of being taught and not being willing to teach others, we're consigned to babyhood. That one of the signs of growing up, that's why it's so exciting to see the number of people that are stepping up to do home group and stepping up to do kids' ministries. To me, that's a sign of maturity. When people step up and... You know, uh, Kathleen had this little schema yesterday of how you learn the best. You know what the top of the list was where you remember the most highest percentage? is when you teach it. Because Mark heard it. Oh, no, you he didn't hear it yesterday. But that's good. That's good. Um, 90%. You know, the first thing I, I almost had to do after I became a Christian in, in high school is my dad handed me one of these Sunday school quarterlies and said, "Son, you're in charge of the teenagers." <laughs> I was a teenager. How I many you know it really makes you learn? So, so it's a sign of maturity when you step up and say, I, "I'm not only going to be a learner, but I'm going to I'm going to also be a teacher." And and then in in that famous love chapter where Paul said, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childhood behind me. So it can be a bit confusing when we say, when, we're, when Jesus tells us to be childlike, what did he mean? And I think in the text itself, he gives us clues. He says, uh, "The, the past, and I've, I've kind of put this, I've looked at the Greek, and I've, kind of expanded a little bit according to the, the nuances that you sometimes miss in English that are in the Greek. And it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then has the greatest rank? The Greek word there is megos, where we get the word mega. In other words, Jesus, who's mega in the kingdom? You know, we're all into mega, right? and we? Mega churches, mega pastors, whatever, right? Who's mega lord in the kingdom? Who has the greatest rank? And it had to do with comparison. It had to do with pecking order. As I said last Sunday, they knew Jesus was the greatest. But the question was, who, who was next to him? And that was where the, the fight was going on, right? And so he calls, in that context, a little child to him and places the child in the middle of all of them. It's literally how the Greek is rendered, in the middle of all of them, and said, amen, truly I tell you, unless you turn, change your direction, become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There was a solemn warning he was giving to them. You're going in the wrong direction. The, 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 the values that you have, what you're striving for, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss what true greatness is. You're going to miss the kingdom itself. If you don't turn around, if you don't change direction here, there's an abrupt face that's needed, about face that's needed here. And um, so he puts a child, and as we said last week, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a theology with, with children in the middle, not where children are the focus, but where they're the lens. The focus is Jesus. The focus is the kingdom of God. The focus is God himself. But having the lens and the viewpoint and the vision of a child in the middle is absolutely critical. And so working that out, what does that look, look like for us? What does it mean? And then he goes on to say, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes the, one such child in my name welcomes me. Well, I believe in this text, and if we had more time today, we're behind. I, I wanted you to actually interact a little bit and, and talk about this, but we're we're badly behind in, if we're going to get communion in today. So I want to just blow through this and propose some thoughts that... Because uh, I, I, it, it's such a wide open field, and in this text itself, I believe there are clues as to what Jesus meant when he said, um, become like a little child. The first I would like to propose, okay, I don't believe this is exhaustive, but I think these are important things as I prayed, and I, it, it was a funny study prepare week for me this week, I just didn't, often I get concrete thoughts and, you know, I do some research and and, it, and it, it was one of those things where I just felt like I had to listen to the Holy Spirit and just say, okay, what, what is pertinent for us? And, and, of course, really wrestle with this text. And the first thing I, f- I want to offer to you, it, when Jesus talks about becoming like a little child, is found in the words when he said, unless you turn, or unless you change your direction, unless you become like little children, the capacity to turn Last week, I talked about how that Wes Stafford, the founder of Compassion International, uh, talks how that children are like wet cement. They're they're at a time in their life when they can be shaped, they're malleable, they're impressionable. And in a sense, Jesus is calling us to be wet cement for the rest of our lives. And the only way we can learn how to do that is from children. It's by being with children and seeing how they are and keeping that childlikeness about us that keeps us with that ability to be shaped and molded. It's the capacity to humble ourselves continually and repent. To enter the kingdom of God, we must humble ourselves and repent. And that's hard as an adult, and often we need a jackhammer. Often we need to hit rock bottom before that happens. Children don't need that. But as adults, we often have to hit rock bottom because we've invested so much, and it's humbling for us to admit that we've been going the wrong direction, that we've been investing in the wrong values with our time, our money, and our energy, and all of a sudden to say, I am wrong. It's hard to do. And guess what? When you enter the kingdom of God, you then begin to do that every day for the rest of your life. It's the ability to humble yourself and to repent. It's hard to do. That's why I think this exercise in residential school for Canada is so important. I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that I grew up in the greatest country on earth, and I still do. But it's a black eye for us to have that in our history, that there was this cultural genocide where we actually, only a few years ago, were experimenting in residential school on First Nations children. That's humbling. And to have that taught in our schools, it's an important exercise in humility for us. I, I admire the Germans for uh, having Holocaust memorials in their country. I admire that. Because it's easy to just slip it under the carpet and say, well, that was a bit of an anomaly. You know, Hitler went crazy. But to, to take ownership, so it's it's having a posture of humility and repentance and every day recognizing I can get it wrong. I'm only one choice away, one attitude away, one thought away from really grieving God and hurting people. You know, walking in that utter dependency that it's 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 the paradox that That uh, I am a sinner, that the people that I love the most, I hurt the most. And yet, like the songs we we sang this morning, the blood of Jesus makes us the righteousness of God. So it's this paradox of, of being righteous, but yet totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God every moment of every day. And every night. So that's the first thing. I could, I could go on and on. There's, that's a big topic. But there's this capacity to turn, to remember the Creator in the days of our youth, as Ecclesiastes said. And and what happens is we get hard. My son-in-law, Marcus, when he was a uh, pastor in the state church in Switzerland, he noticed that he worked a lot with elderly people. He visited elderly people. And he said there was two kinds of elderly people. There were There was was two categories. The first was they were the meanest, nastiest, grumpiest people you ever met in your life. Victims full of blame. And then the other were the sweetest, kindest, most gentle Christ-like people you ever met. And I want to give honor to one of those who just went to be with Jesus this week. Does anybody know this guy? we call him Kutch. He was a friend of mine through the Vancouver East Ministerial. He was the first or one of the first Japanese Canadians after that terrible mistreatment in the Second World War here in the Lower Mainland who went to UBC. Attended UBC and then he got his Master of Divinity at McMaster's University and then for many years pastored Grandview Calvary Baptist just over here. And then for many other years pastored First Baptist down on Burrard Street. And every time I met this guy, he died at 93 years of age last week, he was just the sweetest, most gentle, just not, nothing of blame or being a victim or, he just was full of Jesus. So, whew, honor you Kutch today. I'm going to have a funeral for him on, on uh, Thursday at First Baptist, 1 o'clock. So the second thing I want to say about being childlike is the capacity to learn. How many notice kids are like sponges? My grandkids are incredible. Now, excuse me while I brag. But within a couple of, of years, they are completely fluent in English. This is as preschoolers and Swiss German. Have you ever learned another language? Is it hard? yeah, see see it's because the cement's hardened, right and 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 just the capacity to learn is incredible and and it's because of a of a curiosity and they're they're like sponges. you know if you think you know it all, how many know you can't learn anything and And so many of us I, I once heard somebody say you never learn anything while you're talking, right? And 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 children take it in. What's the first description that the Bible ever gives us about Jesus in a in a in a relational conversation context? What's he doing? You remember the first time it ever mentions him, he was a child. He was 12 years old. Huh? Close. <laughs> he was in the temple, and what was he doing? Asking questions and listening. Listening and asking questions. And so there, there's a clue there. There's a curiosity that, that we lose. I remember my first uh, junior high class, and in B.C. we don't have junior high, I don't think, sometimes the middle school, but in, in Alberta, there's, a, there's a, a demonic category of school called junior high and it's grade 7, 8, and 9. Oh, my goodness. But anyway, I remember going from elementary into junior high, and my first science class in junior high, my science teacher, she asked us, why do the leaves turn color in autumn? And we, and we lived up in northern Alberta, and I'd already assumed, because I always saw this parallel with the leaves turning color with the frost coming. So we always said, well, it's because co- it's cold. And she refused to give us the answer, and that whole science class was she just kept asking us questions, kept asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. And finally, she, we ourselves came to the conclusion of what the answer was, that the days had been getting shorter, affected the photosynthesis and the light, and so the leaves were turning color. In B.C., you're smart, you know that, but northern Alberta, you know, it was <laughs> so cold. We have brain freeze, right? And, and, uh, and I've never forgotten that class. I've never forgotten why leaves turn yellow, uh, you know, turn c- color, but I've never forgotten. There was something deeper that impacted me, and she just, she scolded us in a loving way. I didn't feel berated, but she, she challenged us. Don't lose your curiosity as a child and asking those questions. So that's the second thing, is the capacity to learn. Um, thirdly, our identity, this is the third thing I feel that Jesus is saying to us as children, is finding our identity in belonging, not performing. Now, did you notice last week when Pax told his story, at the end of the, 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 the message, I I heard this story, and I thought, well, that's a nice story. And, you know, we all went home. And all of a sudden, I got hit between the eyes uh, a few days later, a bit slow. And I realized that his story was all about being a baby and his mom coming and picking him up, you know, and taking him into the kitchen and putting him on a table. And it was all about belonging. You see, there is something about children who find their worth not in what they do, but in who they are. And who they are is because of whose they are. Connection. Belonging. But too early in life, how many know that gets twisted? And it gets perverted. And instead of of whose we are, we begin to become valued by comparison. Looks. Looks. Athletic ability, how well we do, how smart we are, um, teens finally start to rebel against that and go, well, the only time I get attention is when I'm bad, so, woohoo! And this value system is in our world. It's a value by comparison. I love how Brennan Manning, who I believe has passed away now, but he wrote uh, the, the book Abba's Child. And Abba's child, is that right? Anyway, he wrote a lot of books. And he talks about John the Beloved, how that John found his identity as the one who Jesus loves. And, and he says that the other, maybe some of the other disciples got ticked off at John for that, to, to, to say, well, I'm the one that Jesus loves. But it wasn't a comparison thing, or even a one that Jesus loves more than others, but that's my identity. That's who I am. And Jesus warned about this twisted value system that can even come into the kingdom where even the gifts of the Spirit give us our identity, where our talents and our abilities give us our identity. Remember when the disciples were out casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead, and they came back and went, Woohoo! Jesus, what an incredible missions trip! We raised some dead people, we cast out some demons. And Jesus stopped them and he said, Don't rejoice. Because the demons listen to you. Don't rejoice. You raised a dead person, don't rejoice. You healed a sick person, don't rejoice. Be thankful, of course. But that's not where your joy lies. What is your joy? That your names are written in heaven. That God knows your name. He calls you by name. He's named you. You're his son, you're his daughter. He delights in you. I remember after my nervous breakdown when I'd I'd been preaching across Canada, seeing thousands of kids come to Christ, was in demand as an itinerant speaker, had had probably one of the largest youth groups in the nation. And then I got totally wiped out by nervous breakdown, was sitting in Kelowna, just a, re, just a basket case, had a total breakdown, mind and body, thought my ministry was over, thought I could never be a father again, could even be a husband again. I'd lost my health and mind and body. I didn't think I would live to see the end of the year. And you know what the song was that became so important to me in those months of un- indescribable darkness? Were these words, if all I ever saw is what you showed me, if all I ever knew is what you told me, I'd be content to realize you know me. And all I want to do is live for you. That's my identity. I'm God's child. And he knows my name. And it never gets bigger than that, folks. It never gets more profound than that. And that's what children teach us. That's the message from children that Jesus wants to hold before us all the time in a world of twisted values. And lastly, I think that children remind us of our absolute dependence. In our child protection manual called Love Protects, which I know you've all studied and memorized, and are highly versed in, there is a, a very powerful quote from Carol Weeb, who wrote, Plan to Protect for the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and she says this, We protect, we believe that childhood innocence is a gift given by God. <clears throat> Children are naturally trusting. Children readily place their faith in adults who care for them. It is our responsibility as a church to safeguard that trust. Childhood innocence is a gift that we must plan to protect. In other words, to serve our kids and to work with our kids is a privilege that has to be earned. We believe in having a plan to protect because of Jesus' solemn warnings, of course, in this passage, but also because, of course, we love our kids and we, we never want that, that capacity to trust to ever be broken. Well, we want to teach them wisdom, yes, we want to teach them discernment, we want, to, we want them to learn when things are not right and to, to, to detect that, that there is evil in this world. But I love that, that aspect of children who place their faith in an adult that says, I'm going to be taken care of. I may not always get what I want, when I want it, all the time, but I know that mommy or daddy or whoever it is in their life, whoever has been entrusted to them, is taking care of me. Is that good? And that's what our Father wants us to learn from children. Did you know that Jesus lived that way? Jesus said, I do nothing except what I see my Father doing. I can't do anything. Babies, when they're born, when they're conceived, are are utterly dependent on the body of their, their mother. And as they're born, the feeding, the changing, the sleeping, without another person they would die. And Jesus literally lived every day of his life with that kind of relationship with his father, utterly dependent. And you know how, it's scary to me how quickly I get out of that. I, I get pretty good pretty fast. I'm talented, I know what I'm doing, man, I can get up here and preach, hallelujah, I know, I've done this a million times, to do, I can do it with my blindfold and my hands tied behind my back, Right? <laughs> And it's always those times that I lay the biggest egg on the platform you ever saw. (laughs) Right? Isn't that the truth? We just, I I can't tell you, you know, I I preach to crowds uh, way bigger than this size. But let me tell you something. There isn't a Sunday I go into where I just say, Jesus, I just can't do this. I just can't do this without you. I'm overwhelmed. At the responsibility of representing the living God and speaking his word. And you know what? I'm getting older, I'm getting weaker, I get tired faster, and I get really impatient with myself because I don't get jobs done as fast as I I used to. And I've had this shoulder thing and I don't move around as fast anymore. And I get frustrated. Even to get a coat on. Sometimes Kathleen says, Okay, let me, she helps me get my coat on. It's so embarrassing. And I get, I, get, I get impatient with myself. And it's at those times I remember Jesus saying, I got you right where I want you. You need me. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Paul said, Lord, take away this thorn. Take away this pain. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient. What's your weakness today? Where do you feel limited? Where do you feel dependent? Can you hear Jesus saying to you right now, My grace is sufficient? As we go to communion today, can you hear Him say, My grace is sufficient for you? My strength is made perfect in your weakness. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast except in the Lord. I often think of Peter. When Jesus said, Peter, guess what? You're going to fall flat in your face. You're going to deny me. Now, what would you have done if Jesus would have said that to you? What did Peter do? He said, Lord, I'm going to prove you wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong, man. I'm going to fight to the death. I'm going to beat off anybody that tries to attack you. I'm going to die for you. Right? How many been there? Yeah? You got good intentions, and then you do it completely opposite. And I've often thought about that. And what would I have done if I were Peter? And and I've I've reflected on that. And I've learned to to do something different than what Peter did sometimes. Sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes I forget. But i found that Jesus is faithful to warn you when you are going to sin. He is faithful to warn you when you are going to fall. And there's a prayer in the Lord's Prayer that says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there are times when when God answers that prayer and He says, Son, you're going to fall. You're going to fail me. It might be a challenge in the area of lust. might be a challenge in the area of pride. might be a challenge in the area of sloth. It's usually one of the seven deadly ones. He'll say, you're going to fall. You're getting arrogant. You're getting proud. You're going to have a relational conflict with your wife. You're, there, there's, there's, there, there's a warning that comes. And instead of saying, okay, i gotta, I got to, you know, psych myself up and Get ready to, to overcome this sin. I've learned to fall on my face and say, Jesus, you're right. You are right. I am going to fall flat on my face unless you help me. And I have found over and over and over and over again that that's where his power comes. That's where his grace comes. It's that dependency on him. So how do we, how do we do this? Learn, turn, identity and belonging, dependency. How do we do this? And I think in the passage, Jesus tells us how. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. I think that all of these things that that I've shared are pertinent to becoming like little children, but I don't think there's anything that takes the place of being a multi-generational community. There's nothing that takes the place of us being intentionally multi-generational. As I shared with the parents and kids' workers yesterday, God has revealed himself as a multi-generational God. He said, I am Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So multi-generational is actually in the very nature of God. He also describes himself in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is that? Why does God describe himself as the God of a people of three generations? Thomas Cahill, in his book, The Gift of the Jews, said this, that any vision that you have that does not take more than one generation to fulfill is too small. If your, generation, your vision can be fulfilled in your lifetime, in your generation, you're dreaming too small. And the vision that God gave Israel transcended generations. And the vision that he's given us has transcended generations. We need our kids. We need our ancestors. We need our forefathers and foremothers. We need our children, our grandchildren. We need them in this vision. We're all an intergenerational community. The last prophecy of the Old Covenant in preparation for the coming of Jesus. What was it? What was the very last prediction that was given in the Old Testament about the new era, the new age that Jesus would inaugurate. He will turn the hearts of the fathers, the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. Intergenerational healing. So there is just something that is mystical and more caught than taught. Roland's been letting me read some of his papers that he's doing in his education program. And, and he talks about how learning, is, it's better caught than taught. And kids better catch what we want to teach them than us teaching them. But we catch what they want to teach us as well. There's, an inter, there's a mutual teaching and discipleship that's going on as we... Uh, as we're deliberately intergenerational. So that's why it's not always pretty. It's not always tidy. It's often messy as we seek to work out being a multi-generational church. But whenever I spend time with children, whether it's my own grandchildren or some of your children, Whenever I interact with even our neighbor's children, I feel closer to the kingdom. So I asked the Lord to help me practice and develop the art of relating well to children. And some of us are better than others. But learning to ask good questions, learning to get down at eye level. It was so neat. I was, I was sitting on the, on the floor in the prayer time and little Sarah was sitting right was standing right across from me, and we were eye to eye. I was sitting on my butt and she was standing full upright and it was we were just seeing each other eye to eye and it just felt so right just felt so right so it means getting down to eye level, humbling ourselves as these little children, learning to do this well, using your gifts I love Merrick you know the the professor in a, a, a uh, in Afghanistan, when he did kids' church, he'd always do these mad scientists ex- experiments with the kids. And he'd tell me afterwards, oh, kids' church was great. He said, I did an experiment, and he's a physicist, you know, a, a world-renowned physicist. And, and, and uh, he says that the experiment failed totally. But it was wonderful. That's, and he would say that over and over again. Terrible, but we learned some things. We learned some things. You know? Or, or whether it's... Uh, Scott playing floor hockey or Rick with Woolly or, you know, Terry ann with her music. Kathleen is a teacher. And uh, Joanna is in a dramatic gifts. You know, each one of us has gifts. God's not asking us to do something we're not. But be who you are and and, uh, use that to love the next generation. So cultivating a lifestyle of humility, repentance, teachableness, and dependency on God are blessings that come from being an intentionally multi-generational community of faith. And over the next few years, or years uh, well it is years, but especially over the next few months, we want to work out what that looks like more. We want to go deeper into that. What does that mean? Jesus, what are you calling us to as an intergenerational community? And how can we, how can we worship intergenerational? How can we uh, learn scripture intergenerationally? How can we minister in the Holy Spirit intergenerationally? We still believe in, in age-specific training, that it's a loving thing to do, but, but how can we more and more cultivate the art of being a community that's intergenerational to bring healing between generations in a society where often there's so much pain, so much pain between generations. Does that make sense? So let's practice. Why doesn't somebody go call the children? What we're going to do is we're going to bring the sign-up sheets uh, upstairs. So the children are going to be brought up by their workers, uh, and they will uh, be signed out uh, at the welcome table. So we'll let you know when uh, they come so parents can do that. Because we'd like them to uh, at least observe us having communion together, and some of them, as parents at, at your discretion, can participate in communion with us. Uh, in, in the Passover celebration in the Israeli festivals, the child was actually involved in the Passover. The, the child would say, Daddy, why did we do this? Why did we bring the lamb into the house for four days? And then, you know, now we're eating it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was traumatic. Have you ever thought how traumatic that would be for a child? You know, a, a little lamb brought in the house, and then they're eating the lamb. And, and, and I, the first time that really hit me, I realized that God was trying to get, a, get, get an understanding of, of his torn heart, his broken heart. Uh, and, and it was just one way that, that, that children began to understand God's broken heart over, over our sin, and that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. Um, and the children would ask, right in the Passover, the Seder, they would ask. Uh, and, and there would be this uh, intergenerational interaction that occurred uh, around uh, the Jewish uh, festival of the Passover, as well as the, the other festivals. So, yeah. So who's serving today? Okay, Rick and Wade, can you come? Why don't you just prepare yourselves? Sorry, mate.